Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Rihanna Brown. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today our guest is Anna Takia. Anna creates spaces to embody diverse futures. She uses performance and participatory art, futures research and strategy, produces and curates exhibitions, installations and immersive performances. She has worked at the intersections of art, design and technology with major cultural organisations and design practices in the UK and Australia and is the founder and director of All Tomorrow's Futures, a cultural and strategic consultancy that helps clients develop artistic interventions that contribute to equitable and just futures. Anna's art practice explores participation in futuring and seeks to do this inclusively with other humans, creatures and things. Anna holds a BA in Fine Arts, a Master in Strategic Foresight, and she's currently completing a PhD in RMIT University School of Design. Welcome to FuturePod, Anna. Oh, thanks, Rihanna. It's uh, such a joy to be here with you. Likewise. All right, let's start with question one. This is the story of the guest and how you became a member of the Foresight community. So tell me about your practice. What are the threads that have been there all along and how did you end up doing what you're doing? Such a good question and a challenging one too. I think it's interesting with stories and I, I always find it challenging to know when to start because we, of course, can go far, far back or we can keep them more contemporary, I guess. I was reflecting on it recently and and I think for me coming to a futures practice or a foresight practice like many things in life was completely unplanned but there were definitely some things along the way that led me onto the path. But I guess in terms of thinking about threads that have been more consistent through my practice I'd say from from when I was young two of the things that were a, a big part of uh, my growing up were a passion for social justice. I grew up with an activist father who had been an anti-Marcos activist in the Philippines so I grew up up going to rallies and, and protests and one of the first times I ever appeared in a paper there's a very cute photo of me when I was two being taken to a, a rally that was hosted by the Filipino community in Melbourne to celebrate the inauguration of Cory Aquino who was the Philippines first female president and also who came into power after Ferdinand Marcos went into exile and left the Philippines so that was always a really big conversation in our family and, and really having conversations about justice and, and equity and, and political conversations. And then I think the other sort of interesting thing was I, as a child, I always did have a, a preoccupation with futures questions and particularly around climate futures. And I think growing up in the 80s and 90s, I was concerned about global warming and I was concerned about the environment in a wider sense. But I remember as a kid being curious about it in, in almost a playful way. So amongst the sense of concern that action was needed to address deep environmental challenges, as a kid, I guess I was this sort of enthusiastic child survivalist. Um, and I think the idea of sort of societal transformation and, and change in a changing planet was somehow exciting to me then. I remember absolutely begging my mum to buy me from a bookstore is a book I still have now and it's called The Hard Times Handbook. <laughs> which might give you some sense of the framing. But it was basically this book on, on how to survive in urban areas, in amongst blackouts and electricity failures and potentially not having access to, to utilities that you'd have in built up developed places like like Melbourne or, or big cities in Australia. Somehow I was enchanted by almost sort of this romantic sense of the possibilities of living life by candlelight and <laughs> would often... I think just annoy my family into getting them to turn off all the lights and explore what living without electricity was. And I think being an only child as well helped me to have that idea sort of indulge somewhat. So um, my early years were spent exploring what, what it might be like to cook over open flames. And I was really curious about how you could build sort of refrigeration units using insulation or, or, or old eskies. So those were the kind of strange influences in my childhood that I think have somehow found their way into what my practice is today. You've been rehearsing scenarios since you were a child and they're so so relevant. You know, I'm thinking right now how timely it is that we're living in an existence where we have a percentage of the Melbourne population now with no power for a month. It's sort of sad to say that it's like almost 30 years on that this is actually the reality that we're living in. I, I completely agree. I mean, 
there was a moment when I came across a, a box of old books and had to decide whether I would hold on to the, the Hard Times Handbook or not. And I conceded that it was actually an incredibly relevant book for our time. I still have it now and it's a good reminder for me to probably um, <laughs> refer back to it more regularly. I'd say the other theme that's been really strong throughout my life and, and has shaped my approach to doing futures work is really a love of creative practice and of arts practice. And I think one of the things that I am hugely grateful for to my family and the circumstances I had growing up was that I was able to grow up in a space where creativity and, and playfulness and being able to explore all forms of um, art making and writing and um, whether it would be illustration or drawing or, or playing an instrument where all those things were really encouraged and, and nurtured. And creative practices has been really a driving force throughout all my practices, so much so that when I graduated and, and went to university, I went to art school and studied media arts, which is part of a fine arts department at, at RMIT. And what I was really curious about then was what was emerging in terms of digital technologies and also the possibilities of the internet, which were still a little fresher and probably a little bit more utopian than they definitely are now in 2021. But I'd been really exploring all sorts of more traditional art forms, but was really interested and curious about the possibilities of making work on new platforms and using different kinds of media. Working with computers was really interested in in the kind of net art and these sort of wild spaces of possibility in terms of what people were, were doing with code and creating online. And so that eventually took me to study media arts at RMIT. And I had for, for quite a while a, a practice as a media artist or a more of a screen and lens-based artist and did some work that was more installation-based and ended up focusing more on experimental animation for a while. And that eventually actually took me to the UK where I started a career working in the film industry. I worked on a feature animation um, and had, you know, wonderful kind of early experiences of working professionally in the industry and getting to sort of see what the possibilities of, of doing work in professional animation might look like. And through a few different twists and turns of fate, ended up not working in film, but actually returning to working in an arts context with the Philharmonia Orchestra. So working with a big symphony orchestra in London, where I actually joined a brand new department which was their digital department. And what was really interesting there is I ended up becoming their first digital producer and working with them to create a range of um, more digital audience engagement projects, but ones that took the form of not just films and, and podcasts and kind of content online, but more immersive and experiential interactive exhibitions and installations that really sought to find a future for the orchestra beyond the concert hall. And it was really interesting to work in the context of a very traditional arts organisation who could see that their future was somehow limited by the fact that their audience was changing and that their audience was rapidly ageing. And we're asking some really deep questions about their continued relevance in a world where um, orchestral music may not be relevant and the modes of listening to um, and appreciating orchestral music might also be quite foreign and intimidating to and present barriers to a lot of different communities. So it was really interesting to work with an arts organisation who are really directly engaging with these uh, challenges of their immediate future and to use creative as well as technological means to look at, at ways in which we could address those challenges and, um, and, and work with them for a number of years, both producing exhibitions as well as touring exhibitions internationally. I think there's such a powerful thread that helps capture, I guess, the essence of your practice. And that's that combination of creative practice meets social activism meets a deep inquiry around how do we actually locate ourselves in a more embodied way through these transitions. It sounds like it's been there the whole time and now it's kind of manifesting more into the actual professional practice that you do now. It's so great to hear that you see those threads. I think sometimes it's there's all these things that come together to make <laughs> obviously a career or, or a life really. And it's sometimes hard, I think, you know, when you're in the midst of it to even see what those threads might be. There's definitely points where I look at my practice now and, and I ask, how did I actually get here? And I know that even engaging with people I might have um, worked with five years ago, my practice has been transformed so greatly since then. I think, you know, being able to connect the dots sometimes might be challenging. One of the things as well, I think, that engaging in these questions about 
the future of arts organisations that was really interesting to me as well as a producer was that um, I'd often receive briefs from arts bodies or arts organisations where they were clearly looking for a technologically mediated approach to solve a problem of organisational relevance into the future. And I think as my producing practice developed, I began to, to get more and more interested in the strategic thinking that sat behind those briefs and that really sat behind the prescription of digital media or prescription of a digital technology to in some ways, quote unquote, save a cultural organisation and and make it relevant into the future. And there were several cases where, you know, I'd look at a brief and my instincts would be immediately to interrogate it a bit more and to question it because technology is definitely not a fix. And I think I began to grow increasingly wary of the blanket idea that technology will save us across many domains, not just in cultural spaces, but also this idea that somehow what we might see as a technological advancement, as in specific types of digital or database technologies and systems, would somehow enable an organisation to exist in the future or would somehow be able to place it within a future's lens. And I think that kind of level of growing kind of criticality around not just the the digital platforms and the technologies and the tools and the uh, the structures and cultures as well which that they'd been developed out of increasingly the, the work I got more and more excited about was really working with with artists and designers who were engaging more critically around these these issues of social and technological futures and then increasingly questions of social, technological and environmental futures and really framing digital and technology, uh, digital art or, or work that was using technological means to make comment on, you know, socio-ecological futures in a way. You've inherently been doing this work all along, but what was that process where you then bumped into this more formal futures community? Yeah, so in terms of really starting to encounter futures and, and foresight work, it was actually when I was working for a strategy and strategic design studio called Thick back in Melbourne. And there I had the very good fortune to work briefly alongside Beth Highland, who is one of the alumni from the Masters of Strategic Foresight and was finishing up her Masters at that time. And what really struck me about what she was studying and working with was uh, this fascinating ability to be able to hold uncertainty and to hold uncertainty with groups in these really interesting ways. And at that time as a producer, I worked on short-term projects that had really limited life lifespans in a way. You would get some funding or you'd get a brief and maybe six months, 12 months later, you would deliver a a project or a performance. Um, So at the time, kind of futures thinking, longer term thinking wasn't so immediately um, central to my practice or it didn't seem to have too much bearing on my practice in a very immediate sense. But that started to change through the next couple of roles I had in cultural organisations after that. I actually ended up going back to the UK and, and working as creative producer on an exhibition at Somerset House called Big Bang Data. It was a really amazing project to work on because I was working with a lot of artists and designers who were asking, this was in 2015, so they were asking a lot of really pertinent questions about future uses of data and big data sets and really asking about the ethical and societal implications of an increasingly datafied society. Some of the most fascinating projects I was able to work with and even artists I was able to work um, produce and, and curate in that show were, were really artists who were engaging with speculative design practices. So I was able to work with Sarah T. Gold, who's a UK-based speculative designer who had this amazing project called The Alternet, where she was engaging with imaginaries of the internet and looking at creating actually these really interesting artefacts, future artefacts that it had imagined a different kind of internet into being. And we actually brought her into that particular exhibition at Somerset House to present a project called Data Licenses. It was a, a speculative project that proposed the development of, of data licenses where individuals could enter into contracts with, with companies over how their data 
might be used and was really about centering the control of individuals and the ownership of individuals over their own data. In 2014 or 2015, when she was developing this work, it in itself demonstrated so much foresight in raising these issues around data ownership, but also um, creating tangible and really provocative, provocative and engaging ways for people to actually reimagine what a different relationship between data ownership might be. You know, at a time when uh, the increasing collection of personal data seemed like it could only logically go in one direction, here was this provocation that asked people to reimagine what their relationship to data might be and actually gave in some ways some very concrete reimaginings of how those relationships might be designed differently. It sounds like that kind of moment where you realise that there's a modality or a practice that actually explains what you've been doing all along. The practice found you and you found your practice. Well, yeah, it was exciting. I'd been working with creative practitioners, so artists and, and designers and different kind of practitioners who had been using new and emerging technologies as a creative medium mm-hmm. and ones who'd been using them also to critique or be critical about the social kind of um, settings in which those technologies had been designed and developed. But it was really exciting to be working as well with practitioners using technology to reimagine it and to reimagine possibilities otherwise. In late 2015, I returned to Australia and took up a job at the Melbourne Museum. And I was working there as exhibitions producer and I'd been hired to lead the redevelopment of a major permanent gallery which was a very different kind of project to produce because it was a longer term project it was a project that was going to unfold over three to four years and it was also very different in in the sense that the project itself had legacies so one of the main things about the project was that whatever we installed needed to be able to speak to audiences over 15 to 20 years potentially after its installation date So as a producer, that was a really complex brief and also a really problematic one. I'd been used to producing exhibitions that were temporary or performances that were in some ways more ephemeral. So this idea of having to create not just content but a framework and um, modes of ways to engage people with ideas and the topic of this particular exhibition was actually around the question of what it means to be human Um, So thinking about how these questions of biology and cultures of the body and things like that might evolve in 20 years was also really challenging and and we had a number of questions on an organisational level to ask, I think, ourselves as a museum about how we design and build exhibitions for change and changing audiences, which weren't supported by the current exhibition development models, which usually, you know, involve investing a lot of money to create something that's new and shiny when it opens Mm. and then loses its relevance over the continuing years and eventually ages before it's replaced. Again, just to kind of loop back to those threads that have been there throughout your um, life and the evolution of your practice, it's kind of that sense of, you know, using creative context, I guess, to unfreeze those everyday conversations about futures. And then as part of that opening around how do we challenge orthodoxy and how can we challenge the grammar of what is possible here and how can we actually experience some of that in the present as part of that futuring practice where art crosses over with futures, crosses over with design, crosses over with change and transformation. You said that beautifully. We should have just recorded did you saying that then? <laughs> so our next question is really about some of those key methods that underpin the work that you do or the philosophy that underpins the work that you do. I kind of see it as what's in your carrier bag of futures, <laughs> including both the technical work that you do, I guess, but also that underpinning belief system and philosophy in how and why you do your work? Yeah, I think for me, and this has been consistent across all my practice, has been really a deep ethical commitment or a commitment to engaging any practice I'm involved in ethically, considering its ethical entanglements and implications. And for me, as I had the opportunity to do a Master's in Strategic Foresight and obviously when I started my Master's I was anticipating that I would work organisationally to do futures work in in cultural spaces. I entered the course really interested in how museums and other cultural organisations imagine their own futures and and design themselves for change. 
But what really evolved is, I think, thinking more broadly about our future, our shared future, planetary futures, engaging in those great conversations that emerge from our course around things like energy futures and climate futures. I once again found much more of an awakening around what is the right practice as a futures practitioner with the skills and the methods that we have. What is the right practice in this particular time? And by that, I I guess I'm really referring to, um, although it's a problematic term, the Anthropocene. So um, the Anthropocene is obviously challenging, like the name itself centres the human, which is unhelpful. But if we think of the the term as really demarking a time that ushers in great change and change that also upends the idea of human agency in relationship to the world actually asks us to think about how a combination of agencies and forces beyond the human constitute our survival and our thriving and our also the fact that we are embedded in systems of life <laughs> and non-life mm-hmm. and we emerge from that we that we interconnected embedded and entangled in a number of different life ways and contribute to them as well. What does it mean to do this practice when we acknowledge we're living through the sixth mass extinction? Um, (laughs) Obviously, that's a big shift from thinking about how a museum should design a long-term exhibition in a way. But within the practice context, I feel engaging these, for me at least, engaging these questions ethically is is really paramount. It's also what's given me the energy to work through within the practice that I have, whether it is working in a museum context or whether it's working in other cultural contexts. How can I have these conversations with others if I am doing futuring work on on projects? How can I not talk about climate futures mm-hmm. when we're talking about a 20-year projection for, for a client? What are the tactful ways to be able to have that conversation or the productive ways to be have that, able to have that conversation? There's parts, I think, as practitioners where we piece together different methodologies, which is inherently based on the way that we see our practice and do our practice and who we are as individuals. But it sounds like your carrier bag is very contextually driven. And this sense that I get from you around the unlearning dimensions that would be required as part of this constant shape-shifting within your carrier bag. And when I talk about unlearning here, it's not necessarily about a state of non-learning, but this is more about new questions and new knowledge production. And then thereafter, what now is in my bag in terms of how I actually do the work? Exactly. And I think for me, one of the last things I expected to happen while I was moving through my master's was to return to my own art practice. And that's in fact what did happen. It was really in terms of thinking through these questions, what I feel are urgent questions of time that we're in, that I'm in, and also I guess acknowledging and and looking really squarely at the grief I was experiencing when I could truly acknowledge that our shared home, the planet and the places that we're living in are changing and changing rapidly and may change to not be so supportive of uh, human life in many ways if we continue going on the major trajectory that we're seeing, especially around things like climate policy in Australia or lack of. I think to phrase it in a different way, I feel like, as you pointed out, the context is really important to me and I feel that the context and the tools and the approaches are all co-arising with each other in a way. Mm. So for me, this desire to bring in particular a participatory arts practice together with participatory futures practice has really been also to ask how futures practice can be developed, to ask questions about what the possibilities are for futures practice. If Future Studies has had a big history of evolving out of a Euro-Western and North American context. What does it need to do now? If we're thinking Anthropocene futures, what kind of futuring tools do we need to talk about what's what's emerging and what's evolving in an Anthropocene, uh, emerging Anthropocene realities or futures? And I feel that for me as well, one of the big parts of the context in my practice that grows ever more important is is really actually about situating and contextualising where I practice from. Mm-hmm. You know, not only am I alive in this particular time, but I'm also here um, as, you know, an uninvited guest and a settler on unceded lands in Australia or for, in my context on Wurundjeri country. The Anthropocene is 
itself a legacy or has emerged out of a history of colonization and also entwined with that modernity um, mm. and, you know, these Euro-Western concepts of modernity as well. And when I'm thinking about what does it mean to practice ethically on these unceded lands that have suffered the trauma of colonization and continue to, and people who continue to suffer the, the, the traumas of colonization, I think where does the futures practice that I've inherited sit with this as well? Mm. And yeah. for me, I love the futures and foresight field in the sense that there are a diverse range of practitioners and practices in there. There is an openness to method. But when I look at the tools that we use, even tools that I love using and tools that I see the absolute benefit in their use in particular contexts, we still do preface our tools on linear notions of time. The very fact that we are so focused on the future as futurists is telling. Even the profession itself is telling, like this idea that a future can be disengaged from a present and a past. And, and I say that knowing that many of us very much value the future's role in bringing us back to a present and giving agency to a present. And that concept is worked with in more nuanced terms, but I do think it is telling that you've got this separation of the future out from all the other times, but also there is a really specific fact that Western cultures have divorced time from space or more particularly place. So how do we <laughs> reconcile yeah. the fact that we're working with the, within these kind of colonial mindsets, the fact that we've also developed tools that still perpetrate this linearity in terms of futures thinking and yeah, look, these aren't easy questions that I have the answer to. And in some ways, they're big questions that you could spend easily a lifetime unpacking and developing ways to reckon with or negotiate and move through. But they are questions that really excite me too, in a way. And they're questions that I'm choosing to to try and address through a creative practice because I think within the lens of, of art making and, and for me as well, participatory art making, there's a scope to have really different conversations from different angles with different actors in different places, particularly in places where futures or foresight conversations or work might not ordinarily happen. I guess it's an underpinning philosophy that is inherent to any of the work that you do inside the carrier bag of your futures work is a critical investigation in terms of how we as practitioners challenge our own taken for granted truths in the work that we do and our own limiting beliefs. So this sense of unlearning our own practice as part of the work that you actually do, you know, or where your work becomes a process of enacting that inquiry is a really powerful way of you bringing your unique contributions to the field and then thereafter the field evolving as a result of that constant kind of unlearning, relearning process. I feel that the possibilities for performing new types of futures practice into being uh, are here. And and these possibilities, obviously, with when we think about it in terms of performing or performance, that they are always located in the present. How is it that we perform our practice today? Why do we perform it? Who does it benefit? What kind of futures do our futures practices reproduce into the future um, or produce into mm. the future? Can we produce different futures through different reimaginings of futures practice as well? So it does get very meta, <laughs> which is where I feel actually a lot of my kind of questioning often goes with practice. But yeah, definitely. And I hate to say the word ontology, but and, and of course, ontology itself has its own kind of baggage in Western philosophy in particular. Obviously, Western philosophies that divide, you know, ways of being like ontology from epistemology is like ways of knowing mm. are also problematic. But just because it's the language that I've got to work with, um, definitely thinking about how we, what our ontological commitments are and our grounding is as, as practitioners, what cosmologies we, we operate within and, and from. Mm are really important questions and, and ones that I feel like as a field we haven't really necessarily deeply engaged. I think part of my fascination with this was growing up very much in, in a multi-ethnic and multicultural household where other philosophies, other ways of knowing and being were constantly not just being discussed but being enacted. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, my father's a traditional Chinese medical practitioner, so I grew up engaging with that body of knowledge, but also with Taoist and, and Chinese philosophies that attended that. And, you know, I think one of the amazing things about philosophy or Taoist cosmology, which Ursula Le Guin mm. completely picks up so beautifully in her work, is the fact that Taoist cosmologies are ones that that see existence as, I'm just going to try and use the words of David Hinton, who's a, a translator, who's translated a lot of classical Chinese poetry that's emerged out of particular Taoist and Chan Buddhist like lineage. But he talks about the the concept of the Tao as being this constantly changing membrane of existence of which everything is co-constituted. And when you've got such uh, refined philosophies that talk to that talk in very different ways about how we understand change and how we understand ourselves in relationship to change i feel like these kind of knowledges and ways of being as well in the world can't be ignored when we think about our futures practice around anticipating change or understanding change you know i feel instantly drawn to asking how as a practitioner i'm understanding change and how i'm viewing concepts of time and and place and space so this has been for me an emerging space of research and and practice and i'm really trying to practice into it and I think another thing for me has really been also engaging in you know, a particular Zen Buddhist meditation practice and mm-hmm. also being involved within a Buddhist community as well. And I think when you've got concepts such as of interdependence or even the concept of interbeing as kind of uh, termed by Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, you have encompassed within the concept of interbeing whole ontologies that that speak to how things arise in the world and how things hold and how things fall apart. Mm-hmm. And I feel as well the way that my futures practice has been evolving in some ways has been kind of an, an additive one where I've been, you know, thinking with and, and practising futures but also thinking about how these other practices in my life, cultural and artistic practice, but also kind of meditative practices and, and other practices can all inform each other in a way. So as part of your carrier bag, what does that look like in practice? I think if I was to try and um, give form to what these emergent tools look like, um, definitely they're informed by, you know, my creative and artistic practice. And if I was to imagine what they look like, it would be a cloak, especially designed for shape-shifting. I feel that trying to perform or inhabit new forms is, I guess, a tactic or a strategy that I'm finding useful in doing more creative or experimental futures work. So when I had a project called Workplace, which was effectively a a pop-up office space on one of the streets in North Melbourne, and I worked with a friend, Annie Wu, who's a fashion designer, and she created me a strange brown woolen suit that was halfway between a brown woolen suit and a set of pyjamas. And um, it was it was a suit which, when I put it on, I could inhabit an amorphous future workspace, which was designed to, you know, in 2019, this was pretty radical to purposefully blend domestic and office spaces, and was asking questions about the spaces we might work in in the future. Obviously, by like March 2020, many people were working from an office that was also a bedroom or a home or a domestic space, often in pyjamas. So um, I like to think that was a little bit of predictive futures work I did there. But in all seriousness, what I found really interesting about being up to perform in this space and, and the performance effectively was one where I played this kind of combined role of an um, employer slash fortune teller who would invite participants, just people off the street, to join me for 20 or 30 minutes um, and apply for a future job. So I'd conduct a future job interview with them. And what I loved about the suit that Annie made me was that it just allowed me to put something on at home and then I would catch the tram into the art space where this installation was based but I could be, I could play a different character and I didn't have to be necessarily the foresight or futures practitioner. I didn't have to be a cultural producer, but I could be someone who existed in, in an unspecified time and place. And somehow by virtue of this suit, had the ability to 
ask people some interesting questions about their assumptions about work and jobs and what what they thought an equitable and just future work might look like for them. And I I don't know what what this would translate to as an object, but I think as well play and playfulness, of course, is a, a really big part of what I really value in the toolkit. So I guess maybe as an orientation or a, an aptitude, an ability to play with with questions of the future that are inherently serious. I think that's one of the joys of working in creative and, and artistic led ways. Um, yeah, look, kind of those moments are what really uh, give me a lot of joy and excitement. And I think with the playfulness, you have to attend to it with a good degree of silliness. Like, You know, I don't think I could call this a quote-unquote serious futures practice, but why not? If I think about our next question, which is really about how do you make sense of the emerging futures around you? You know, what are you paying attention to in terms of your own hopes and fears? What are some of the things that you're sensing is shifting It's a really challenging question. My sense of what emerging in the future is necessarily also very biased um, because I'm currently engaged in a research project that's called Creatures and it's looking specifically at the role that creative practices play in futures of socio-ecological transformation. So I'm very aware when I say this that I'm spending a lot of time with artists and looking at artists' work an artist's work coming from predominantly Europe, so a very specific part of the world. But I feel like what has been one very strong thread that I've seen with a number of works that are that are socially engaged or socio-ecologically engaged, you could say, has been really around the relational. Mm. And I guess to, to go back to thinking about Danella Meadows and her framework of leverage points and places to intervene in the system, what I'm seeing is a number of artists and artist practices who are working and are being drawn to working at that transcending paradigms level. You could also say working ontologically and really looking at how we can either repair relations or transform relations or create new relations with earth others that we share our lives and places and planet with. And so I think it's really interesting to look at how these conversations around worldview have been popping up, but also this sense of urgency or desire to adopt relational worldviews and to better understand how relationships can be forged or reforged. I think a lot of thinking around how to deal with the atomization and separation and also the individualization that's emerged from Cartesian thinking. Um, it's been sort of promoted through Western modernity and it was also has been reinforced through like neoliberal mindsets too, this idea of competition, the, these ideas of one against all. But I think that's what I've been attuned to and, and so I'd hate to sort of say that that's where I think the future's emerging to. I mean, I'd love if that is where the, <laughs> where all of our futures are, are going in a way, but that's one thing that I found really interesting in, in engaging particularly artist work in future-orientated spaces. So, I mean, I think from a practice perspective, the artworks that I'm creating and, and the pieces that I'm developing all have in many ways, I'd say, this element of either trying to develop spaces where people can see their own embeddedness in any emerging future, see their embeddedness in all sorts of systems, but also where they may also recognise different degrees of agency or different abilities to participate in how the future shifts. Mm-hmm. And I think on a personal level, one of the the elements of particularly of my practice that I also see is speaking really nicely to mindfulness and meditative practice as well is that great concept of looking deeply. If you look deeply at any given phenomenon, at anything, <laughs> at ourselves, is the recognition that the looking deeply is both the act and, and the inside in some ways of seeing the mutually interdependent parts between ourselves and and the cosmos also does enable us to see ways in which we can make differences. Some of those differences can be significant and some of those might be very small. What I really appreciate about it is that it almost questions concepts of scale as well and scalability. Mm -hmm. You may never know what 
a small action, you know, mindfully taken, what effects it might have in it in 10 years, 100 years, 500 years, but you do it anyway. It makes me really think that part of the work is, yes, that sensory element around how is the context changing? But then back to the point of the relational nature of how you do your work, it's that reflection back in. How do we move through the future as the future moves through us? There's such beautiful provocations, really. I feel like the question about what's in the the tool set, it's evolving with this. And I think the nice thing about coming back to creative practice and working with creative practice to try and answer or work with some of those questions is that it opens up a space for the methods or the tools <laughs> mm. to sometimes be spontaneous, but also to come sometimes come really out of left field. And at the, the moment, one of the, the things that I'm really curious to develop more around is tools and methods that ask how we can do futuring with more than human worlds, acknowledging that that all of our futures are created through the complex interplay and interaction between human, non-human, living, non-living entities. Then how do we actually develop a futures practice that allows the participation of the non-human, that recognises the agency as well of non-human beings or more than human beings. Mm. Uh, it's a, an interesting creative question too. Do we have those tools in the toolkit yet? I don't think so. But mm. there's other tools, there's other modes of, of being and listening and of knowing that we might also recognise that we have within ourselves or have within our cultures. And maybe those can be ones that we draw upon when we're thinking about how to move futures practice into these different kind of spaces to have these different kinds of conversations. Question four is a simple question, but quite a complicated one to answer. It's how do you explain to people what it is that you do? Oh, Rihanna, this is the ultimate question. I mean, it's the million dollar question for me because I find it increasingly difficult to explain to people what I do. Actually, talking with you now, I feel like I have a better way to answer your question, which is, you know, what do I call myself? And I think I I increasingly feel that, you know, in a year or in two years' time, I, I probably won't be able to refer to myself as a futures practitioner or as a futurist. There is something I think fundamentally about what I'm explaining, which has to unfold all past, presents and futures. But at the same time, I still, with other practitioners, do feel that even even if we do see the future as a construct or a space that's been socially mediated and created and is sustained or challenged in different ways, that that there is something powerful about how we work with these constructs or how we might use a future to reflect on a present or imaginings in a future space. But yeah, look, I mean, if I can come back to you in two years' time and tell you what I'm (laughs) calling myself, it might all be a lot clearer. At the start of our conversation, we explored this idea of what was the right work for you in these times. And I'm really curious about this because I think choosing creative practice is a very purposeful act. The way I see it, I think it sits or it can often sit outside of a dominant system. The work is often not seeking what's requested by the current paradigm. So I'm really keen to hear more about some of those creative projects that you've either been working on or that you will be working on. Yes, I'm so glad to hear that you feel similarly. I'm particularly excited by the possibilities of using artistic and creative practice at the intersection of that and, and futures practice. And for 2022, I've got a few projects that are coming up that I'm really energized and excited by. The first of which, Rihanna, you'll be very familiar with because it's actually a collaboration with you. (laughs) So as you know, but perhaps our listeners don't know, the two of us have been awarded a State Library of Victoria Fellowship to develop a multi-part audio series that looks at the future of work from the lens of Melbourne's labour history and workers in Melbourne, past, present and future, and seeking to centre their voices. I guess one of the things I'm really excited about this is that the two of us have been having for a good couple of years some really robust conversations about the need to centre workers' voices in future work conversations and debates. And what we've been presented with is this really amazing opportunity not only to work together to develop this as a project that has a creative output, 
as well as integrating futures research and, and historical research as well. But this really amazing opportunity to explore an incredible collection. So basically a collection of um, papers as well as reference books, artworks, objects and resources that are held by the State Library in Victoria. And Melbourne was actually a centre, like a real locus of international labour movements in the 1800s worldwide. And that Melbourne workers were really some of the first, along with workers in Sydney, to actually go on strike and demand better conditions and to usher in the introduction of a 40-hour working week and an eight-hour day. I'm just going to quickly jump in here because I think it could be worth mentioning to our listeners that some of the spirit that sits behind that project is really beautifully captured, I think, by a quote from Anab Jane, um, and I'll probably get this wrong, but she shares the sentiment that those with the least power to shape the future suffer its worst consequences. And I think that's a really powerful quote that really sets up the intention uh, and the framing behind After Work. Yeah, I agree so much. Um, mm. I think there's just so much richness there about how we can invite invite in those who don't have a voice or um, are given limited voice on a number of different kind of platforms. All these futures that emerge as well are shared futures. They're futures that mm. we share with others and, and ones that we co-participate in. You know, our future's not just made by one person, even if it's a person with a very loud voice. It's made <laughs> by many voices and many actions. And yeah, look, it's been exciting to think about the possibilities of asking how we can use different um, creative ways to hear the voices of work from across time and mm. create some interventions in, in the present. So in addition to after work, what are some of the other projects that you've got coming up that you'd like to share? Yeah, so there's a couple of other projects as well. And I guess broadly speaking, what I'm really excited about the projects that are coming up is that I think they embody or represent a few different parallel strands of research that are really exciting and interesting to me at the intersections of art and futures research. One of the projects which I've hopefully will be embarking upon early next year, it's a it's basically a residency where I'll be embedded in a rural community in Western Australia, and we'll be working with community to explore the theme of rural utopias. So this is a community-based art residency, which will be hosted by the Cannery, which is a, an art centre based in Esperance, a rural city, uh, which is basically about eight hours drive from Perth along the coast in the south of Western Australia. And it's a really interesting project because it's also, it's being co-produced by international art space who've, who've for over 20 years have hosted a range of different artists and practitioners to do work in rural and regional areas and parts of Western Australia. And also with the Art Gallery of Western Australia, and working with the art gallery, what we'll be looking to do is find ways to bring together both these community conversations around utopia and rural utopias, trying to find ways to actually locate those conversations or intersect those conversations in some way with the art gallery collection. But more generally, I think, you know, being able to kind of meet and engage communities and really talk about what what even a good future looks like, I think, is a valuable and interesting activity in and of itself. And another project which I've, be wor I've been working on um, with another collaborator, another artist called Luna Mrozic Gola, is a project that will be premiering as a part of the Australian Network for Art and Technologies annual symposium, which is which next year is on the theme of multiplicities. But we've been developing some work that involves aspects of performance, live performance, but we play the role of visitors from the future in a way, future envoys. More specifically in this work we're developing, we, we, we're exploring the idea of being futurecrats. So we are bureaucrats from the future. Uh, in, in the future we are emerging from, uh, bureaucracy has uh, continued, <laughs> sadly. But we're using this as a, as a playful device to actually talk about transformative futures in a way. So looking at a future where there's been a transformation in values and the particular futures we're exploring at the moment, ones where there's been a shift in values that decenters the human in a way, uh, a shift in values which where we're sort of visiting from a society where the contribution of many different species beyond humans is recognised and I guess respected. and 
we're using this in a playful way to intervene in in art spaces and in this case in an arts uh, symposium so kind of thinking playfully about well if we were to explore futures through a multi-species lens what would that practically even look like so um, that's an, a, an emerging work which we've been having a lot of fun with in its initial development stages and also looking forward to developing further um, as we move into next year perhaps this is the tie-off but there there's no totalizing approach to this work so for me I'm really excited by the work that you're doing and its contribution to the field and more broadly to society in these times both from that kind of unlearning and relearning perspective but work that is deeply contemplative and relational and creative and more than human, I think is really powerful in these times and it helps evolve our own practice, I think. Thank you so much, Rihanna. That's it's really lovely to hear how you're receiving my work and I hope it, it is making a contribution in whatever way it can to, to the futures field as well. I think as well, you know, although I work across different spaces and different fields as well, um, the futures and foresight community is really one where I feel very much at home. And, and I think as well for that kind of quite deep love for what it is that we're all some, somehow struggling to try to do in our own ways. I think as you've been talking about your work, it really reminds me that, you know, we don't often feel the operation of the mind and, and thus we don't often feel the operation of our own futuring and our own ways in which we do our practice. If you ask us why we do what we do or how we do what we do, sometimes we don't have access to those processes that actually are really critical in influencing what we do and have perhaps influenced what we've been doing all along. So hearing you talk about and tie the threads between your childhood and growing up and how that has informed a very unique lens in which to do this work has been a really powerful story to share. Thank you so much, Rihanna. Like, it's been such a pleasure and I think I'm also just so grateful for the opportunity to be able to have a conversation with you like this in in some ways more of a formal setting in the sense it's being recorded but having the opportunity to talk with you about what I'm doing or what appears to be emerging from what I'm doing I feel like I've also possibly come to a bit of a deeper understanding about what it might be mm. too or where it might be going so thank you so much for the invitation and just the opportunity to have a dialogue. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of supporters. If you'd like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Rihanna Brown saying goodbye for now.